If you've noticed a growing tension in the Friendly Fire system, I don't think you're wrong. The longer we do this show, the more diverse our ideas have become about what makes a good war movie. That shows we're growing, and maybe you're doing that along with us, and that's good. I think it's a reflection of a form of exposure bias. Our consumption of war films has changed our feelings about the genre, the way world travel changes a person's view of the world and their place in it. But it turns out, war movie is a more elastic genre than I think any of us thought possible. And out of all of the hells of combinations, or hell of combinations is, there are two kinds that challenge the delicate sensibilities of the modern moviegoer the most. The very old war movie, and the comedy war movie. Today's film is both, Duck Soup. Most film viewers can leap that first hurdle, the one that involves getting used to a weird mid-Atlantic accent and ancient production values, and we've seen quite a few of those films on Friendly Fire. The hit rate is pretty strong. I would argue some of our highest rated films come from there. Far higher is that second hurdle, comedy. We've seen Good Morning Vietnam, In the Army Now, and Top Secret, and only one of those was any good. And you know which one I mean. Will Duck Soup join the pantheon of great crossover films, or will our conversation be more like a duck hunt? There's a whole lot of irrelevance in the circus on today's Friendly Fire, Duck Soup. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that needs to be mended. Better yet, cast it into the sea, but you can't see it. You're stuck listening. I'd love to listen, but I'm too busy hosting. With a hey nani nani on a hot cha-cha, I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. Good God. I'm John Roderick. <laughs> I've, I was not told that I should have written a custom <laughs> name introduction to this episode. How, how's, your, how's your mid-Atlantic accent, Adam? <laughs> I think you know it's awful. <laughs> George, George. I think, I think you know it's awful. Everyone hates it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, laugh a minute in this, in this movie. This is, uh, I mean, the, the rep of this movie is that it's just, it's the most relentlessly jokey of the Marx Brothers films. Could you imagine being in the theater for this and it just murdering? Well, that's the thing. Like, it, the, a lot of what I read was that, like, in 1933, this was not the mood the country was in, which is, like, why it got kind of mixed reviews and why it, like, didn't do as well at the box office as previous films of theirs. You're saying the Depression was not a fertile ground for comedy incredibly baroque amounts of comedy <laughs> john what was it like when you saw it in the theater <laughs> yeah well, i was already in my 30s <laughs> it's super hard it's always been hard for me to get into the mindset of an audience that that would roll in the aisles at a three stooges or marx mm -hmm. brothers movie um but but watching this i i actually was kind of taken in by Chico and Harpo, I've, I, maybe for the first time, kind of saw the anarchic appeal. You know, Harpo is such a, a little devil. Yeah, there's so much nihilism in that comedy. <laughs> He's just such a psycho, but but like all he wants <laughs> is to watch the world burn. And uh, I think when I was younger and watched Marx Brothers movies, I just didn't get I didn't understand his motivation, I guess. I <laughs> right. Why does he keep cutting people's tails off their coats? <laughs> what is this about? Like he just, he just, but, but watching it this time, I was like, oh yeah, right. Uh, uh, he's the proto Joker. Like, uh, <laughs> and, and I was into it, you know, tell me where you got those scars, kid. <laughs> Well, and Chico, too, like he... Uh, when he puts the broken pool cue on the ground between the peanut vendor and the lemonade man. <laughs> pretty dark scene. Yeah. He doesn't fight it out for that territory. One of you joins my gang. Yeah. <laughs> but he, you know, he's the... 
his caricature is so broad, but he's so smart. And his, you know, obviously Groucho is like smart and playing dumb. Chico is dumb and playing smart. It's it, it used to be hard for me to, to find a path through that or pick a side. But I, I, was, I was into it this time. This was my first Marx Brothers film that I've ever seen. And I was interested in reading about it like the, that this one was almost kind of a forgotten film of theirs. And then there was like a, a revival of people's interest in it in the 60s. And it was kind of this like boomer like rekindling of people's relationship with the Marx Brothers and that it, you know, was a tonic to the, you know, the Vietnam era and stuff. And, and that's something I think maybe why I like it never was like that interesting to me because it seemed like shit boomers were into, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the hippies did all that. Like they, they decided that Alice in Wonderland was super trippy and and they loved all the the anti-authoritarian undertones of this stuff. But you're right. It was the type of thing that you saw on boomer late night, boomer era late night TV, or like your your 70-year-old dad would be like, it's the greatest. Right. <laughs> but you do see, I mean, Duck Soup and all that Marx Brothers stuff, what, the way that I learned the tempo of that comedy was from watching Bugs Bunny. Mm-hmm. All of that animated slapstick, the the Daffy Duck, the Elmer Fudd, it's all all the all the the tempo of it is taken from the Marx Brothers and the kind of the jokes. I mean, Bugs does Groucho all the time, right? Um, like like actually does Groucho. Oh, a fresh hair fan, huh? At a time when when Groucho Marx references really resonated with seven-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, when you're like, why does this children's cartoon feature so much cigar comedy? <laughs> but but growing up in the 1970s, we watched so much of this 1930s and 40s entertainment. Like, you could tell the Marx Brothers was old, but you couldn't tell that Bugs Bunny was old. Bugs Bunny seemed like those cartoons. I, I remember... I remember becoming aware that those cartoons were really old and being shocked because I thought they were making them every week just for me. <laughs> and for whatever reason, for whatever reason, they kept featuring Tojo and, and Mussolini in them, which I thought was like really, you know, again, just for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A young John Roderick would be interested in seeing it to be cartoon Mussolini. <laughs> But but I was trying to think from the standpoint of it being a war movie. I mean, it was banned in Italy because Mussolini took duck soup as a personal insult. <laughs> but that's imagine uh, being insulted by duck soup. <laughs> Some pretty thin skin right there. I mean, imagine yeah, recognizing yourself in it, and going like, "Hey, that's a yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> I had a paint on my mustache on just like that." <laughs> but thirty three is like way after World War One, fifteen years after World War One ended, and a lot of the a lot of the mockery of European politics is kind of right. 15 years old. The nihilist comedies are always sending up the last war. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, these are clearly like Balkan nations. Yeah. And they've all got the like crazy helmets and the crazy, you know, a zillion buttons on their regalia. Like all of the all of the generals <laughs> sitting around celebrating that they're going back to war. Super Austro-Hungarian, which isn't what to mock anymore. And you don't see any Hitler in it. No. Although Hitler would be in all the newspapers at this point. Right. And, and like, that's such an interesting aspect of this. Groucho in, you know, fielding questions about it at the time and also 30 years later when college kids that didn't trust anyone over 30 were getting excited about it again really resisted anyone trying to find metaphor in in the jokes like he he was like no we're just trying to make you laugh it's just it's just a bunch of silly jokes like the the setup is not about us trying to like grind a political axe but like it's it's so amazing to think of like four like Jewish comedians kind of at the height of their powers in 1933 not really giving a shit about what was happening 
globally. Crazy to think about, really. Hitler took over Germany in March of 33. I mean, right before they went into production. So it wasn't like it wasn't like they weren't paying attention. It would it would have been ripped from the headlines to have adjusted the the politics of this movie to be less about mocking Otto von Bismarck. <laughs> and, you know, like how hard would it be to just modify this slightly and make it, you know, make it a joke on on Hitler and Mussolini? Do you believe Groucho Marx when he said that? Because I, I when when Ben first said that, I was like, well, he's a liar. Like, that's impossible. <laughs> Because I considered like there being no downside to him saying that it was like, oh, yeah, my my comedy was so cutting edge back then, like and so subversive, like that's exactly what we were doing. Weren't we geniuses? Why wouldn't he lie in his own favor instead of saying no? That's such a strange position to take. I, I don't know. In a situation like where you have the Marx Brothers being enormous, enormously successful and, you know, like. Uh, prominent Hollywood actors at the time and comedians and national treasures, but also being very Jewish and very conscious of their place in American society as Jews, whether they would have felt empowered to be overtly political Hmm. or whether they would have felt like their at that time, their job was to, you know, to defang their comedy and to make it palatable to everybody and to not, you know, nowadays, if you were a Jewish comedian and you were making a political movie, it would be, it would be super weird to do, uh, to do a, a, you know, a political movie and sidestep all politics or, or root your politics in the politics of the 1980s. Right. It's not unusual for like there to be that that inverse correlation, I guess, right? The more popular you get, the less inclined you are to make a political statement for fear of losing your popularity with part of your audience, right? Yeah, well, and there's also long been a tension in the lives of American Jews over how much to kind of, you know, pass as just being a part of the most mainstream part of the culture of the United States and how much to, you mm-hmm. know, how much to represent their Judaism and, and, you know, bring it to the fore and make people aware of it. And I think that that's probably a particularly tricky math to do in 1933 when like Henry Ford is putting pamphlets in Ford dealerships about what a great political movement Hitler is starting. But it's weird because the Marx brothers are not assimilationists. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Groucho Marx does not conceal his Jewishness. They make no bones about all of their humor coming from that kind of cat skills. Like, um, even though Chico is playing, you know, some strangely, uh, like (laughs) Italian mountain person, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but you know, they're, they're not trying to be wasps. Right. But if you think about the difference between like an Adam Sandler comedy in The Wedding Singer or whatever, he's not overtly Jewish. Mazel tov! Yeah, yeah, yeah! He talked, you know, he much more so on his comedy records than in the kind of mainstream Drew Barrymore movies that he makes. I haven't seen his latest output. I don't know if that's entirely true, but I don't think of him as a very political filmmaker. No, I, I think that's a fair assessment. Of- <laughs> but you compare him to Sasha Baron Cohen. Right. Who, who, even in his comedy, was, you know, injecting like pretty sharp political critique. And now he's moved on into serious filmmaking. I don't know if you saw the movie he made about about being an Israeli spy, but the latest I have seen from him is that he's shutting down his Instagram because of the way Facebook profits from right wing hate groups. So like maybe we all should. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that'll be old news by the time this comes out. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and I think there's a a Borat two coming soon. It's nice. The politics of the era are also, changing in the u.s like the the Hayes code is i think just about to be 
introduced or or just about to be kind of like fully embraced by Hollywood, but there are like jokes about the Hayes Code in this movie. Yeah, there are some pretty racy scenes. The the scene where Harpo uh, goes upstairs with his horse and the camera pans across the shoes of him, uh, you know, his shoes, the lady's shoes and the horse's shoes was like directly sending up the Hayes Code prescription against showing a man and a woman sharing a bed. He sh- they showed a man and a horse instead. Right. And uh, there's actually a uh, an IMDb goof in that in that moment as well. Do you guys want to hear something that an internet pedant found wrong with this movie? Yes. The removed horseshoes that are lying on the floor from the horse that Pinky was riding are not actual horseshoes, but the type that are used in the game of horseshoes. They are much larger and don't have holes for the nails that fasten them to the horse's hooves. Oh, that's why, <laughs> why the really good horseshoe players use the real ones. For the greater challenge. Right. <laughs> I can't believe that I didn't notice that. Yeah. Try to get a ringer with one of those tiny horseshoes. <laughs> I have to say that I was very smitten with Raquel Torres. <laughs> she really wore the hell out of that dress. It was almost blinding with its sparkliness, right? Very glad that this was just pre-Haze Code. I always <laughs> love... To see the kind of flapper era sexuality depicted and realize that that the Hayes Code and the the rest of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and most of the 60s were a period of real repressed sexuality that that I I lived through or not. I didn't live through the 40s, but I was you know born in 41. So, um, but you know, grew up in an era where sexual liberation was was still in the newspapers. Right. And you think about it as being sexual liberation after a thousand years of sexual repression, but it was really sexual liberation after, you know, 30 years of, of sexual repression. It contextualizes it for me in, in a really different way because the, the sixties and the boomers really, really, at least to me, the generation that came after, they really presented themselves as the first people who ever had any thoughts and the first people that ever like danced like no one was watching and the first people that ever <laughs> s- smoked a joint and, and got a hand job in a car or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's like what Back to the Future is all about. Right. As a Generation Xer, I was like, wow, thank goodness for the bo- the boomers who came along and made it okay to like be, you know, like we... Of course, I'm Generation X, so it was like, made it okay to just have everything come crashing down with AIDS just as I turned 16. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I just, I, I just love the, I love to see it in, in black and white and realize like, oh, my, you know, my dad was 12 years old when this movie came out. Wow. So this would have been the type of thing that he went to the theater to see as a, as a preteen and probably influenced his um, I don't know whether he had a crush on on uh, Raquel Torres or not. I wish he was here for me to ask. I was surprised to see that militarism was as much the butt of the joke as anything else in this movie. When right. we're, you know, on the verge of uh, like one of the greatest conflicts in human history, and and probably still, you know, and and. Everybody still remembers the greatest conflict in living memory. So it, it's it's kind of like when you watch um, when you watch Doctor Strangelove for the first time, and you realize that there was irony in the late fifties, and and not everyone was a, a rabid anti communist, but there was. Um, that, that there were thinking people and they were, they were, they were smart and it was funny enough that you could make a mainstream movie out of it. That, that also shocked me as a teenager because I'd grown up thinking that in the 1950s, everyone was united in their, in their anti-communist fervor. Right. And everybody was super serious about everything all the time. I think the satire here for me is just that like idea of we're going to go to war because these dudes have thin skin, you know, like they're going around slapping each other with gloves, but the, the fallout of that is nations at war. And that's, 
sadly an idea that is that feels very contemporary and 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 I, I feel like due for like reconsideration like how how do we get people to understand that thin-skinned idiots can't be given the keys to power well that's a point where the movie kind of doesn't follow up on its own thread a couple of times at the at the top of the movie the idea is that um ambassador trentino of sylvania has a scheme he's he's not thin-skinned he's playing up this game where he wants to take over fredonia right and he's got all this these machiavellian plots about how he's going to instigate a war because he's got european territorial ambitions and that's like uh, a kind of exciting premise but then after his confrontation with Groucho, where Groucho humiliates him and he threatens to go to war, then the movie pivots and the rest of the film, like Trentino in all of his scenes is trying to, you know, make peace or, you know, it, it's a setup for Groucho to keep insulting him over and over. He's like, this is your last chance. I come in peace but it betrays his plot. It betrays the plot of the film and it betrays Trentino's plot, which was always one of political intrigue and territorial ambition. So the film kind of leaves behind its own right. premise. They're much more interested in getting to another bit than they are like yeah. keeping a character's motivations cohesive. And it doesn't, it, does, it wasn't necessary, right? I mean, they could have continued to, throw in these insult gags but have Trentino continue to be a real foil rather than just a rather than just a straight man who's there for for uh, for Groucho to dump on I mean there's some great comedy bits in this movie Why? what did you think of the songs the songs were kind of surprisingly weak I thought like I, the the lyrics were not inspired to my mind they felt like a first draft yeah in their rhyme schemes but you're the professional musician john what did you think of them i was surprised that the movie was the movie broke into song as infrequently as it does yeah when they first started singing i was like oh no <laughs> but then they didn't sing for another hour yeah and i think that first song comes fairly late in the film if for a film, does it call itself a musical? Is this a musical comedy? Maybe they always had a song. Maybe it, maybe a movie from 1930. Like if it didn't have a song, people felt like it wasn't a, wasn't worth their 25 cents. I think you're spot on in in how strange it was that that first song's proximity to the beginning of the film was was so lengthy. I I was caught off guard by it. And not in a good way, because sometimes shocking comedy can work. <laughs> yeah, that feels like the kind of the past is another country phenomenon to me. That musical number toward the end, when war has just started to pop off, was so complicated looking. Like, I know none of the moves were synchronized, and it was it was just a riot in that in that council chamber, but... I was really taken by it. There were hundreds of people in that room singing and dancing. Yeah. Thought that was that was the high point of of the songs, for sure. If you look at the characters that that play the bit characters, all the guys playing generals and all the supporting actors, you can just see that they've absolutely scraped the cantina at Paramount <laughs> of every single <laughs> middle-aged guy with the pencil mustache. If there was a a a book that was just a two-page biography of every single background actor <laughs> in Duck Soup. I think it would be a fantastic book because all these guys were born in 1885. Right. You get to look at their totally unbelievable facial hair. And <laughs> yeah, they've lived. I mean, how did they get? How did they get to a place in their lives where they were dressed as a Fredonian general in Duck Soup? <laughs> In 1933, at the age of 55, you know, they're, they're, they're not out of work, so right. they're grateful for that, but they all, you know, they're all regal looking. Two years later, they'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I know. You, you have to wonder how many of the actors in this movie died of, prematurely of a heart attack at age 53. I mean, that's what makes that sing and dance number at the end feel so dangerous. Uh, I have uh, a tidbit about one of the extras here that I thought was pretty amusing Uh, the uh, screenwriters of the film were standing around on set and an extra who presumably didn't know who they were said I don't know who wrote this stuff but they ought to be arrested they should be (laughs) in a different business and uh, Bert Kalmar wanted to punch the guy in the nose and then they found out that Chico Marx had had paid this guy to say it to him. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love the I love that they had fun making this, you know. That's an interesting comment on the type of comedy that the Marx brothers are known for and what it elicits in other people in real life versus in the film. Like I was pretty surprised at how nonviolent the entire film was uh, outside of the war scenes. But even the war scenes are like so nonviolent. Like it's it's mostly like hats spinning around, you know. Does Lemonade Man even attempt to punch uh, Harpo in the face? Like there's, there's so little violence. There isn't even that in reaction to what's happening. They kick yeah. each other in the pants. There's, I guess there's glove slapping. That's, that could qualify. <laughs> But it really felt like a time warp to go to a place where you could insult someone to their face over and over and over again, and a punch wasn't coming as a result. You know, that's that Laurel and Hardy comedy where, um, you know, Stan Laurel just keeps dropping buckets of concrete on Oliver Hardy's head, and he (laughs) keeps getting madder and madder and madder. But somehow he never, I mean, every once in a while he'll hit him with a boat paddle or something. But the joke is, how much madder can Oliver Hardy be? Yeah, the joke is is the absorption of the punishment. It's never the, it, it's never losing the control. It's never breaking. Yeah, he's trying to keep his cool. And, and, and the lemonade vendor is this, is doing this classic like, slow burn where any one of those insults if it happened to you today even the first one you'd be like what the fuck dude (laughs) (laughs) bro 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 (laughs) the moment harpo gets up and starts like mashing the lemons like a like a wine smasher that would be on world star (laughs) (laughs) i mean they burn this guy's expensive hat two times um but the but the comedy is all in that like okay that's the last straw one right. more time and then it happens again <laughs> he's like okay mister yeah. it me yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> pretty soon i'm going to tell this guy how much it, it really burns my toast that he's doing this listen all i wanted was some peanuts and i don't understand why i have to get all this abuse <laughs> Can I please have my peanuts, please? <laughs> but that was the thing. That was what was so confusing to me as a kid was just like, how many times would my dad let a guy cut his tie off with scissors <laughs> before my dad hauled off and punched him? There would be one time. One, right, you would yeah. only have to cut my dad's tie in half one time. And yet this guy's had his tie cut in half like 15 times. And this was back when a tie was like, both a week's salary and also necessary to leave the house. <laughs> right. The moment a confrontation rises to the level of uh, violence against clothing, that's that's the limit for Ben. <laughs> ben, can you imagine if, if someone cut the tails off of your off of your tux? How you'd oh feel? Oh my god. I write a very strongly worded letter to their <laughs> homeowners association. This means war. Oh, what did you guys uh, make of the period-appropriate racism in this movie? There's surprisingly little of it. You know, they do a little bit of, like, mammy, like, song and dance. Yeah, and the musical number. And there was some some word when the DVD re-release of this film was being prepared that the studio considered cutting that. I think he says, he says darkies, maybe. Right. That was the part that stuck out to me. But that one song was also momentarily pulled from from being on the DVD. The uh, All God's Chillin' Got Wings yeah. song that they they repurposed into guns. 
they're not mocking the all gods chillins. They're using it to mock militarism. That would have been a very commonplace thing at the time, but they're not in our common parlance. They're punching up with it, not punching down the, 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 the goat or the victims of it are the stuffed shirts. Right. Which is interesting in a movie that punches every direction. Like they're punching up, down, left, right, and center. The use of the term darky is definitely like caused me to sit up in my chair and say, what was that? And like, it's apparently like the reference, it's a reference to the title of a song and it's more a pun, but it's, I mean, like a, a racist pun that goes uninterrogated, but it's, but it's meta. The, the, the humor is meta. It's not at the expense of black people. It's an, it's, it's a reference that's being turned in a different way. I mean, there are no black people in this movie or people of any race other than, uh, than the aforementioned Raquel Torres, who is half Mexican. She's the most ethnic. Well, the Marx brothers themselves are probably the most ethnic thing about the movie. Yeah. I think that like hearing that the studio was considering cleaning some of that stuff up feels to me more like white people that are nervous about that stuff than anything else. I I sort of wonder, I mean, like, I don't think any black American has any illusions that there was pretty widespread <laughs> racism in the thirties, much less today. Like, I, but I also like, I wonder, does this have much appeal in, in black America, given how like colorless the film is. This is a movie from a time when black Americans in Hollywood were portrayed. Uh, we're, we're just coming out of a time when they were portrayed by white actors. Mm. There does seem like there's stuff missing though. Also, like I, I'm not sure if it's just like not that great of editing, but like the first when Harpo goes into the lady's house who winds up being the wife of the lemonade salesman. Um, like he, he enters the door and she is ter- totally afraid of him. And then there's just like an edit to the outside of the lemonade salesman coming home. And then back to the, to the boudoir where she's trying to hide Harpo because they've presumably had some romantic tryst. And, it felt like a like an editing mistake to me almost like because because it sort of implies just that she's like afraid of him for a couple of seconds and then like a couple seconds later she's like oh we've got to hide you from my husband <laughs> like I, there were two two i had two thoughts about it one of them was that she was more afraid of her husband catching a guy in the room and not being mollified by any explanation yeah but also, it's there's that film shorthand that we've seen in movies right up until the last year and a half, maybe, where within movies, the the male lead is just presumed to be irresistibly attractive to the women in the movie who are, by all other measures, 1,000% out of that person's lead. Oh, yeah, that definitely stopped last year. <laughs> <laughs> six six months ago 16 months we're ago? all we're all better for it uh so it's the it i think the premise because because harpo does a few times in this movie kind of leer peep you know he's a little handsy that's kind of his character yeah like the looking through the window and then creeping up the stairs scene yeah Ugh, Fur- not great furiously masturbating in the closet while looking out all of those. Hey, that bathtub scene, how do you think they did that? Like, is that a, an extremely deep bathtub and uh, the lemonade man is sitting on a, on a seat of some kind and Harpo is underwater? Must have been. Because it, like, there's, there's no room for two people in that tub. I thought that was a fun effect. There were a couple of great special effects in this movie. There's a, a few scenes where very heavy looking things fall onto people or near people like uh the uh the chandelier that falls on harpo and then there's i I think it's another chandelier maybe that falls really near groucho in the in the war scene when they're in the 
when the house and and you know bombs start falling on them that that look like oh like that actually would have killed somebody if it was a real thing but i don't really know how they did it are they making balsa wood uh fixtures in 1933 is that part of the process i hope so because yeah i mean one of them fell on mrs teasdale that didn't look comfy that was a a a total art form in hollywood for for decades how do you make a how do you make a chandelier that looks heavy enough that uh when it falls on you it doesn't kill you one of those chandeliers fell on somebody maybe mrs teasdale and she shoves it aside and you can tell that it's it's basically made out of matchbooks uh but it's still you know it still had the effect I wondered about those costumes too, like the the military costumes that were so so gilded. I wonder if you if you saw them hanging on a hanger, whether they even had backs. You know, <laughs> uh, um, th- those would have been expensive to to make. You know, I mean, there's some some low budget stuff in this movie, but one area where the the budget was obviously pretty big was the costuming, like the. During the whole war sequence, like every time you cut back, Groucho is in a different, like extremely specific war costume. <laughs> that was fun. Like when the movie gets to the war, they really throw any attempt at cohesiveness of plot out the window. You look at the outside of the house that they're in. Sometimes it's a fort. Sometimes it's a house. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, you know, exploding utterly. Other times it's, you know, like a window is blowing out. It's like, well, so where are they? They did a good job with the pyro, I thought. That must have been really exhilarating Yeah, in its there, day. There was some rear projection happening. I don't know if you noticed it. Harpo got stuck in the closet and all the fireworks were going off. Yeah. yeah, that was like a superimposition of uh, and and that and it happened one other time where there was I, a dinner scene between yeah. Teasdale and the ambassador. I think that was shot that way too. Yeah, they 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 uh, you could see that the crowd behind them was was on a separate screen. It was really a, a cool effect. I thought. Yeah, it was well done. The scene where Harpo is uh, trying to find new recruits wearing that sign that says join the army and see the navy (laughs) i mean that was the most directly cutting moment against the war was when they're talking him into going outside right and they and they tell him to his face like you're the idiot that's going out there to fight while we stay comfortably in here yeah for a film that i felt like up until that point had done a pretty good job in obscuring its true feelings about things that that moment of directness came as a surprise. It kind of matches the moment when Mrs. Teasdale like calls them to ask to come to her rescue. He flips it back in her face like, like it's dangerous over there. Why don't you come over here? This is not a serious war. This is a war that is won by throwing rotten fruit at a guy. But like, you know, bullets are flying and like they don't seem to really give a shit about the terms of that. Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Although it's broadly mocking statesmanship and nationalism, you know, and the ludicrousness of war, all of that is so subjugated to the sort of slip on a banana peel style of humor. Yeah. That you wonder at the end, like we, it feels like we're mocking a mid 19th century version of Balkan war, which doesn't really have, that doesn't have a lot of teeth in, in 1933. And so you feel like it's kind of a, like a really missed opportunity. It feels kind of to me, like the way the cops are made fun of in a Cheech and Chong film, where it's <laughs> like, it's making fun of them for being the guys that don't want us to have the doobies. You mean we're smoking dog shit, man? But not making fun of the, like, system of power that they represent and the problems with that system. It's consistent with Marx's comments that you brought up toward the beginning of the episode, though, Ben. Right. We're not here to change your mind. We're here to make you laugh. Right. So maybe now I'm now I believe Groucho. That's yeah. And I wonder like do we just live in such a politically polarized time that 
that feels irresponsible to us or i mean this was also a very polarized time right i i think we part of what we have to think about is that this has got to be one of the earliest war movies we've watched right it's the third earliest uh, uh as far as I can tell, people will it's tell me. the earliest non-Russian war film we've watched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so we don't have, we don't have a ton of context for how war is taken more seriously in movies at this time period or before. Like hmm. we don't start to watch movies that are, that are political dramas that aren't really jingoistic. We do see, I mean, all quiet on the Western front is a, is a heavy, heavy movie. And we were kind of weirdly shocked by the, um, well, first of all, by the mid Atlantic accents, but then, (laughs) uh, you know, like that's a very strange movie in its time. And that was only a couple of years before this. Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, the Marx brothers come out of that tradition of we're putting on a show. Like they're not like nobody went to vaudeville to get, super incisive political satire. It was like song and dance numbers and, and set up punchline stand up comedy jokes. They did make the effort to make this, to set this in, in a political context, right? I mean, it's, it isn't just slipping on banana peels because they could have done, they could have had the movie called, they could have called it peanut vendor versus lemonade stand guy (laughs) and, and gotten and kept three quarters of the jokes in. Yeah, I think that um I mean part of it is just like put Groucho in a in a position of power has been has been the the math for them. So it's like owner of a hotel in one movie and then the next movie it's like what about leader of a nation? Like where like what what other incongruous place could this guy be? What I didn't realize when 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 the movie opened and um and Mrs. Teasdale uh appeared at the at the the top of the film and did not seem uh, played by Margaret Dumont did not seem to know how to act in front of a camera right like she in the early scenes she seems to be looking at the not at the camera but like she'll she'll deliver a line and then she'll kind of look over at the director to see if she did it okay or something you know she was <laughs> it was very hard to see what she thought she was doing and and I wondered whether she was a, a clearly she was somebody that acted for the stage. And yeah. I was like, oh, maybe she just didn't know how to transfer that over. That, that issue wasn't just hers, though, John. This is an atrocity for eyelines, this entire <laughs> film. I thought. Right. Everybody's just looking. They're looking over at the exit sign on the on the studio yeah. door or something. Somebody's flashing a somebody lights a cigarette and everybody on the stage looks at it. <laughs> But then I read that Margaret Dumont is Groucho's foil in like all of the Marx Brothers movies. And she plays the same role like a ditzy dowager who, <laughs> uh, who Groucho just r- relentlessly insults, but at the same time is trying to woo in order to, in order to get her money. And there's a lot of, Throughout the years, from the 30s on, there was this whole uh, branch of film criticism that thought and kind of promulgated the idea that Margaret Dumont didn't get the jokes, <laughs> that she was on stage and didn't un- and was was playing this like, oh man, oblivious <laughs> wow. person, and she actually didn't get the jokes. Damn, that's and, amazing. And it was only very very late in her life that that she gave some interviews where she was like, clearly I got the jokes. Like I was a straight, I was a straight person. Do you understand that a straight person, do you understand what the straight person does? And she had to kind of defend herself even against real film critics, like people that should know better cultural critics that were like, yeah, she really didn't understand what Groucho, Groucho was just making these jokes. And she just thought she was in a what of costume drama. I, as I read about her, I got more and more insulted on her behalf. And I think Groucho actually in interviews like would say things like, oh, yeah, well, she's really great at it because she doesn't get any of the jokes. She just. But that's such a Groucho thing to say, right? Yeah. Of course, he was 
he was mocking the anyone who would believe it. But one thing that I loved about reading Groucho's response to questions people asked him about this film is how like how in character the responses are like a New York state town named Fredonia being concerned that this movie will be bad for the image of their town and him responding that he's worried that their town will be bad for the image of his film. (laughs) (laughs) So great. Yeah. (laughs) He had a problem that a lot of broad comedians had though, which was that people expected the Groucho character to be the Groucho person. And he had a hard time being believed when he was sincere about things. And conversely, like when he's talking about his other actors, if he quips, uh, sometimes that would be taken seriously unintentionally. He's so funny and the writing is so funny sometimes. And then other times the delivery is so stilted and the joke is so lame. And I, I know from watching modern films how hard it is to put jokes together that are good throughout a whole film. Uh, we see plenty of movies where it's like, why aren't the jokes slightly better? How did you make an entire comedy film with $30 million and forget to put good jokes in? Where were the jokes? <laughs> but really funny or really unusual in a time like this where you had such great comedians and writers and actors and sometimes Groucho can't keep from looking at the camera, you know, or like doesn't know where to look. And they're yeah. several years into their film career at this point. I don't know. It must be, it must be that there's a guy, there's a guy in a newsboy cap, so like twisting a lever to keep the film moving through the camera. And a guy with a, <laughs> you know, with a cheerleader horn going, all right, action, everybody. It's a very distracting film set. I was struck by what a team effort the, the film seemed to be. I mean, like we've got four March brothers, but then a cast of thousands and like, you know, they're not writing the jokes themselves. I mean, I'm sure they had a lot of input in the jokes, but like they're, you know, credited writers. They took a lot of material from a radio show that they were on that made it into the film. And like the writers of the radio show got like extra dialogue credits. And it's, I feel like a different, a a really different um, ethos in that era about how you go about making a comedy. Like, oh, like we did this on stage a few times and it worked really well. Like, uh, like the mirror gag was like a thing that came from their stage show. It's a variation on like the sequel mentality of today. Right. Or even like in a broader sense, like uh, the idea of superhero films. Like if, if something works, just keep beating it. Over and over again. <laughs> if you have a successful podcast, keep making new podcasts. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well put. No, I, I mean, like, I thought about when uh, when we've gone on tour, Adam and I will write a, a show that's, you know, maybe 30 or 40% pre-written. And from night to night, like, Adam might do a joke one night and I do that same exact joke the next night just because, like, oh, this is the part of the show. Where you steal Adam's jokes. It's yeah, but guy. but but the setup setup came out of his mouth, so I'll drop the punchline and right, vice versa. So you're versa. just going to grab it and make it about you, is what you're saying? What I'm is trying to say is, I steal material mm-hmm. reflexively. Yeah. <laughs> How does that feel, Adam, to work with a guy that is always grabbing your jokes night after night? <laughs> my my generosity is frequently exploited, yeah. uh, especially in comedy and performance. <laughs> so yeah. I'll leave it at that. I take the joke in one hand and cut it off of Adam with my giant pair of scissors with the other. (laughs) I put it in my pocket with my giant blowtorch and my bike horn. That blowtorch looked so dangerous. How could he have that inside his coat? (laughs) What the hell? It really was a a great special effect. And I think the special effect was that it was just a real blowtorch. Yeah. Yeah. Lighting a cigar on that must be terrifying when you've got, like, brill cream in your hair. (laughs) Yeah, and as we learned a long time ago, none of these people showered. They were just covered in their own body oil. Everybody is basically on the verge of spontaneous human combustion, and then they bring a blowtorch into the mix. (laughs) Well, he, he pulls those giant scissors out all the time, and 
there's not a lot of of physical comedy in the sense of um, people getting bopped on the head in this movie, and you see that you see that in lesser lesser films of the time, just a lot of like hitting people on the head with a hammer. Although maybe not lesser. I mean, that's Laurel and Hardy survive all kinds of terrible, terrible falls and accidents that would kill normal people. You don't see a lot of that, but boy, Harpo pulls those scissors out. He's like waving them in people's faces and stuff. Yeah. And just like cutting them, cutting them in with this kind of deftness. Everybody's in motion. Yeah. They have to be really sharp to be making it through the tails of a coat with that much ease, right? Right. And he's just got them. He's just wielding them. That felt like the most dangerous thing in the film was just like Harpo's freaking scissors. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's review time on Friendly Fire, and that means uh, the construction of a custom rating system for duck soup. Where are the ducks? Guys, in the intro. That's it. That's the that's the only place you find them. That trivia about the Marx Brothers choosing animal names as movie titles due to their inherent popularity. That was pretty funny to me. <laughs> the popularity of animals, you mean? <laughs> of animal titles. Like people statistically went to more movies that had an animal in its title than didn't, and that's why they called it duck soup, <laughs> and that's why they did horse feathers and a whole bunch of other movie titles that they chose. Is that so, real? Kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah, there was a science to it. Uh I thought the funniest part of this movie to me was when Trentino enters a room after Harpo leaves wearing only half a hat. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a moment that symbolizes the difficulty I had truly enjoying this film because Duck Soup suffers from a little bit of the, the Adventures of Gerard problem, and it's the subtlety. And I think, Ben, you put it earlier, like, Experiencing a comedy like this is like going to a foreign country. It's going to be a rough ride sometimes. You're not always going to get it. I think that is an apt description. But my issue with the comedy here isn't so much that it's a foreign language, but that it's like music. Like when everything is at the same volume and that volume is turned up, you aren't given a chance to appreciate uh, some of the subtleties. You aren't given a chance to catch your breath and... Uh, maybe look for another thing that that delights. It felt like something to endure in a strange way rather than enjoy. Like these characters go on these runners and it felt like watching someone do a longhand math problem in comedy terms. Like, like it's just quip after quip after quip. And I understand that like for its time, that was the language of the genre. But... In a strange way, it made me think a lot about In the Army Now in that way. Because In the Army Now is also a movie where we're given scene after scene where, okay, you can almost predict the the end of the scene based on its setup. And I felt like we were led around to the scenes in Duck Soup in that same way. Interesting how like the headwaters of comedy inspire modern comedy in those ways. I can appreciate the Marx Brothers as like the progenitors of comedy in general, and I think it's fun to see how someone like Rodney Dangerfield would be inspired by a Groucho Marx or or those Warner Brothers cartoons that you were talking about, John. Like it's all there, but I think what I learned by watching this movie is that I do like this kind of comedy a lot. But I don't like it performed by human beings. I like it performed by rabbits and ducks and not people wearing grease paint. But like sometimes a friendly fire movie is an interesting exercise in research. And it was neat to go so early in time and see what comedy was like. But uh, these comedy headwaters are infested with ducks, guys. And it's probably the reason why there's a no swimming sign posted on its shore. Whoa, what is going on with this review? There aren't enough half hats in this film for it to work as a comedy for me. So I'm going to come in pretty low with two and a half half hats. What the fuck? Two and a half half hats. 
I loved the conversation so much more than the movie. Wow. I can't even do the math on two and a half half hats. It's difficult to say. I I don't want to say it anymore because I feel like I'm going to fuck it up. But it's Like one and a quarter hats. I know. <laughs> I know. Man, that's rough. You really dragged duck soup. Um, I had a great time watching this movie. Um, we came home from dinner knowing we had a friendly fire movie to tuck into, but knowing that it was a short one, t- a tight 70 minutes, which I always appreciate in a friendly fire film. Oh yeah. Uh, and I sat there on the couch with my wife and we laughed the entire way through. And I think that the, that, that may have been a watching it with people thing. I I, I, I wondered sitting there if uh, if it would have been as laugh out loud for me if I'd you know if she'd been sitting at the dining table doing work on her laptop and me sitting in the living room playing it on my headphones. I found it very appealing, and I found it very interesting to think about the time that it came out and the the parallels that uh, I could think of to the time we are currently living in. And, and it's interesting to imagine people reacting badly to this in that time because of how, how like the, the excesses it delights in. And as a war film, it's like, it barely has anything to say on the subject. And, and, and what it does say, it's like, it seems inspired to it seems to lack specificity uh and i think that's intentional and i agree that that's a a missed opportunity especially in this time but um but to see the kind of genetic level comedy of our culture represented in an early example like this uh was very rewarding for me so i will give it four and a half half hats hmm. When when uh, when I was teeing up to watch it, I su- I was uh, I was down at the Oregon coast this past weekend um, for my birthday with my family, and I suggested to them uh, that we watch Duck Soup together because it seemed like oh what a family type of movie you know what a what a what a fun evening we'll all watch a Marx Brothers movie, <laughs> and the response from my collected family was like surprisingly not into it like no way (laughs) screw you we want to you know watch black mirror or something something that's like (laughs) good (laughs) and i think it's that the, the the idea of like a black and white movie with this sort of broad broad 30s slapstick pun based humor uh everybody feels like it's kind of excruciating you know that it's a little bit that you just kind of wince your way through it because it doesn't hold up. And that was my feeling too, sitting down to watch it. I was like, well, got to watch a movie for friendly fire. And this week it's going to be one that at least it's not come and see guys. Should we rate every friendly fire film on a scale of one to five come and sees <laughs> yeah, is that what we're missing, <laughs> but sitting down and, and, the wincy stuff is so egregious. I mean, I wince more at people that don't know how to not look at the, at the exit signs in the studio. That's the stuff that I wince at, you know, the badly written songs. Like if things are flowing, I can watch slapstick all day. The, the, the setup to introducing Groucho takes way longer than the, than the payoff. And a lot of the a lot of the jokes early on feel like a high school production that was written by the by the drama teacher. But then it gets into swing and and I really feel like when Chico and Harpo show up is when the movie kind of starts to starts to move. And then I found that like, oh, this was not as hard to watch as I expected. And then at the and then at the end, like after the war starts, it's just like Mel Brooks level of chaos. <laughs> I don't want to give it a rating that's some somewhat based on my low expectations going in. 
Um, although I do often give films ratings based on how much they disappointed my high expectations going in. <laughs> and that's saying something because I have generally low expectations of everything. But I don't think it is much of a war movie, even though it's clearly a war movie. But I'm going to give it three and a half half hats just to kind of split the middle. Wow. Got a ladder of ratings. Yeah. All right. How many hats total, Ben? If you gave it four and a half half hats, I gave it three and a half half hats, and Adam gave it two and a half half hats. Oh, man. Um, I hope people will write in to go fuck yourself <laughs> at maxfunkenstein.sex and tell us how many half hats we came up with. How many whole, whole hats? Oh, yeah. Whole hats. But tell us in terms of half hats. Boy, am I looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just as I'm looking forward to finding out who your guys are, Ben, who's your guy? Uh, my guy is a soldier that is uh, is uh, raising his saber uh, in honor of the new head of state, Rufus T. Firefly, uh, at the in the opening gala, and uh, Rufus T. Firefly comes in via. F- fireman's pole and uh, goes up Hmm. and tugs on the tassel on this guy's sword and asks who they're waiting for. Uh, (laughs) They don't cut back to this guy when it's revealed that Firefly is is the person who asked him who they're waiting for. But uh, I just, I could picture being that guy and, you know, not knowing who Firefly is or what he looked like, but, uh, you know, just, just uh, making, making a fool of myself. So, He's my guy. Hmm, that's a good guy. Pretty good guy. How about you, Adam? I really saw myself in the lemonade vendor. <laughs> his, his ability to endure the constant hat burning. The, for some reason, grabbing of the legs in self-defense. He was, he was really just flailing. The, the light cucking he had to endure later on. Uh, he's just always put upon in this film, and he never gets violent. So uh, good for him for, uh, for holding back somehow because uh, one or two of the Marx Brothers should be dead by the end of this film <laughs> because of what they do to that guy. How about you, John? Who's your guy? Well, I've already mentioned her. It's Raquel Torres. Yeah. Um, in the role of Vera Mar- Marsal. Marcal. Uh, I have, throughout the course of my life, had to confront many times the fact that whatever the beauty standard was in the late twenties, early thirties, it really equit acquits with my own personal uh, taste in terms of beauty and style. And I never understood it when I was young, but when I saw old movies and particularly silent movies, I always just fell in love with the female lead. And this is another example of as soon as Raquel Torres appeared on the screen, I was like, oh, and I, I waited for her to return. And every time she swanned around the room, I, my, you know, my eyes followed her. I missed a lot of the funny gags uh, that happened in any scene she was in because I just was, you know, kind of trailing along behind her, seeing if I could catch a whiff <laughs> of her perfume. She's completely like speaking in a, in a fake accent throughout the film, and I and I loved it. I found it very believable. I wanted her to talk to me in that accent as she, you know, like hit me with a fish wrapped in newspaper or whatever it was that passed for courtship in 1933. Anyway, so I would be doing her a disservice, and all of the uh, the actresses of the of this period by not choosing her as my guy. Wow. Good guys. How far forward in time are we going to go for the next film, do you think? Only the 120-sided die. Let's see. Determine that. Let's get the the old die out of the die bag here. Oh, wait, I got to finish my coffee if I'm going to use the coffee, isn't it? That's the right order. Mm. Finish the coffee. Okay. I've been keeping the die in a bag that says congratulations, a little velvet bag here. Now I don't, I never lose it. Adam asked me the other day if it was, if the letters or the numbers, I'm sorry, on the die were white. 
And I said, well, they're pretty coffee stained now. <laughs> they're, uh, they used to be white, but now they're all coffee colored. Okay, here we go. 120 sides. Which one will pick our movie? Here it comes. Oh, wait, let me get that little bit of coffee out of there. Mmm. <laughs> okay, here we go. One oh nine, one zero nine. Wow, big number. One hundred and nine. One hundred and nine takes us twenty-four years into the future relative to duck soup, but pretty far in the past from our perspective. It's a nineteen fifty-seven Andres Wadja directed World War II film called Canal. Canal. Which canal is it about? Uh, it's it's canal spilled with a K. During the last few days of the Warsaw Uprising following World War II, a modest group of resistance members remains. The band must take refuge in the sewers under the orders of leader Zadra, but it's only a matter of time before they will have to emerge. Wow. I like it. Yeah. Sounds claustrophobic. It is. Boy, the uh, the names of the actors involved. <laughs> this is going to be a struggle. <laughs> Are we going to have a tough time? Sokrotka. <laughs> Jasek. Zadra. I, uh, oh, there's a schmuckly in there. I'm looking forward to it. Adam, yeah. you, you can help us uh, pronounce the names. Oh, yeah. I'd love to. And uh, anything you get wrong will be a shame on your people. Uh, uh, it always is. <laughs> Uh, cool. Well, looking forward to watching Canal. Uh, looks like we're going to be watching it probably on the Criterion channel, but it's also available on Canopy, which I think is... Uh, I think if you have a local library, the chances are pretty good that they have a Canopy uh, account that you can get access to. So uh, everybody watch Canal for next week's episode. Yeah. And we're going to leave it with Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Happy New Year! Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And that podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Why not start off the new year by revisiting a classic Friendly Fire episode? Last year at this time, we covered A Bridge Too Far from 1977, which was a Richard Attenborough-directed film about Operation Market Garden. Feel like supporting Friendly Fire? Well, you can do that by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or by heading to MaximumFun.org slash join. Where for as little as $5 a month, you can gain access to our bonus pork chop feed. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.